The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Well, let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open with me to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 7, and uh, God willing, we'll look at verses 14 through 25 today. I hope you picked up on sort of the theme in the songs that we were singing there. And um, Ethan and I didn't exactly talk about it, but Ethan, it was just great to to just experience kind of the, the perspective of someone who's living a life and where you are in your brokenness and your sin, coming to the Lord and finding the Lord so welcoming and finding Him able to wash away your sin, to hold you fast, to take you all the way home, and, and to find that process in the life of a believer repeated over and over again and that constant turning from our sin and ourself into trusting the Lord and finding Him to be forgiving and welcome, welcoming and washing us new. That, that, is, a, that is an incredible um, way to start our time together here today. Amen? So, let me just set this up for you. Exodus chapter 7. We've been walking verse by verse through this. And um, let me just kind of give you a, a little bit of a, not a background, but uh, we're, we're beginning to look at the plagues. And uh, a few years ago, several years ago, actually, my kids were fairly small. Uh, my family and I went on a vacation, and uh, we went down to Panama City Beach. And uh, we, we hadn't been there a lot, but we were living in Georgia at the time, and that was sort of the beach that everyone from Georgia went to. And so we went down to, uh, to Panama City Beach, and uh, when we arrived, we discovered some things that made our vacation less than a vacation, uh, we discovered there that there were these things called love bugs. And does anybody know what love bugs are? Yeah, love bugs. I think I got a picture of some love bugs. Those are love bugs. And uh, we discovered that we had driven right into a swarm of love bugs. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, this is not a pleasant experience. This is a little bug, and it's a member of the March fly family. And uh, uh, they're small flying insects. They're about the size of, of uh, a, a firefly or a lightning bug. And uh, they are common in the southeast, especially in the Gulf. During and after, excuse me, during and after mating, they, they stay together for a long time. And they even fly around like this, okay? And so we came into Panama City, family vacation, for several days, and here's what we found. Uh, localized love bugs have been known to fly in huge numbers. You can take that down from the screen. I just don't even like looking at it. Uh, but they're, they're, they're known to kind of, uh, hundreds of thousands of love bugs will swarm and, and kind of localize in one specific area. And, uh, and you think, well, you're kind of lying about that. You're kind of exaggerating. And my wife's down here shaking her head, and she'll say, no, he's not. It, it looks like, in fact, Wikipedia explained it looking like you almost look at it and you think, it's snowing. But instead of falling, it's, some of it's kind of rising. And these are bugs in the air, and these are these love bugs flying around. Um, the, the species has a reputation for being just an incredible public nuisance. Um, and it's not due to the fact that they bite or sting because they, don't, they can't do that. They have no stinger. They cannot bite you. My kids will testify to that. My kids would go outside, and they would literally be covered up in, in just, just seconds. And my daughter was small at the time and, and, and uh, just kind of freaked her out and, and probably would freak all of us out even now. But uh, just be covered up, especially if you're wearing this sort of light clothing. They don't bite or sting. They're just all over you and all over the place. The reason they're a nuisance 
by and large, is because their bodies are highly acidic. And so as you're driving your cars through these swarms, you know what happens when cars meet bugs? You, You get the remnants all over your car, right? Well, if you don't wash this off in a pretty quick amount of time, the acid in these bugs has been known to leave pits and, and kind of eat away some of the paint and some of the chrome on cars. Not only that, but it, it, it will come up into your, 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 uh, your cooling system and clog up that and cause your engine to overheat. Your windshields will be covered. And I'm telling you, it is just, it, it is just an absolute nightmare. I think for about two months after we got back home, uh, my son loved to terrorize my daughter. And he would say, look, Abby, it's a love bug. And she would, you know, uh, freak out and scream. That's not really true. But, uh, but I thought it, and so I'm a terrible dad for thinking that and putting it on my son. But, but this, was, this is what we found. There were these swarms. You could not go outside without this being the case. They were literally all over you. You could look down, and there would be 20 to 30 bugs on you at any given time. Everywhere you went. Not only that, but there was also a red tide. I think I've got a picture of a red tide. Uh, a red tide happens, it's a, it's a natural phenomenon when an algae in the water blooms, and it has sort of a reddish-brown bloom, and it actually causes the water, the surface of the water, to turn red or brown in color. So we walk out, we've got bugs flying everywhere that are all attached to one another, and they're all over you, and we think, well, at least, we'll, at least we can go down and we can look at the beautiful water in Panama City, and nope, it was no longer clear and, and beautiful like the Gulf Coast is. It was red and brown. Not only that, but the red tide, you can take that down as well, the red tide kills fish. In fact, it kills manatees. Several, many, many manatees are killed every year, but it also kills fish. So now we have hundreds of thousands of love bugs flying around, red tide, and there are dead fish all over the beach. And you're thinking, I'm making this up. I'm not making this up. I heard somebody the other day talk about how they had a terrible vacation, and I wanted to say, no, you didn't. No matter how bad of a vacation you had, it was not as bad as mine. Because this beach literally, you know how you can walk down the beach and look for seashells, and and every so often you can pick up seashells? We could have done that with dead fish, except dead fish are not as as fun to collect, right? And, And there is a stench and a stink Everywhere. This was the vacation that felt like I was in Egypt during the Exodus. We're going into, and that's that's a small picture of what we're going to see. We tried to tough it out. We thought, well, let's, let's try to go here. I think we spent more time in bowling alleys and, and skating rinks and everything else that week because you just had to stay indoors. But that is a small taste of what God's going to do in the plagues. And here in this first plague this morning, God is going to turn this water into blood. And, and we're going to see him turn water into blood. And, and the question that I want to pose over all of these plagues is, why would God do that? So we're going to have almost like a little 10-week mini-series here of why would God do that? And that's sort of going to be our theme. The Bible doesn't prefer to call these plagues. The Bible prefers to call them signs and wonders. But plague is really a pretty fitting word because the, the, the word plague itself is a, is a Latin word and it means uh, a blow or a punch uh, or, a, or a wound. And that's exactly what God said he was going to do to Egypt when he delivered these signs and wonders or the plagues. Exodus 3.20, God said, So I will stretch out my hand 
and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. So keep in mind, when when we ask the question, why would God do that? God is showing himself to be more mighty than Pharaoh and all of Egypt. He is wounding them so that his will would ultimately be brought about. So let's read our text together, and then we're going to dive in and look at God as he turns water to blood. Verse 14, chapter 7 of Exodus. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh or Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and their pools of water, so that they may become blood, and that there shall be throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink from water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not even take this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Now, as we walk through this text today, we'll go through verse by verse. I won't always take every single verse at a time, but this passage and all of the plagues are not going to lend themselves to nice little clean points of application. What we're going to instead see is God. We're going to see some things about who God is and what God does, and the application will come out of that at the end. So hang with me as we walk through this. The first thing I want you to see is retribution. Retribution. Verses 15 and 16 and verses 19 through 21, we read of what God is going to do. And we wonder, one of the first questions we have to ask is, why the Nile? Why turn the water into blood? Why make this explicit statement to Moses and Aaron, go out and stand on the bank while Pharaoh is coming out to the water in the morning? Why? Why the, why the Nile? Why the river? Is this just coincidence? God just looks at anything there and just says, ah, oh, that's good right there. Just use that. Or is God being intentional with what he is choosing and selecting for Moses to do here? I think it's that. And I'll give you a couple of reasons why I think so. God here is bringing about judgment, retribution. Number one, 
for the fact that it was in the Nile that Pharaoh attempted to murder and did murder many, many, many Hebrew baby boys. Do you remember in the beginning in Exodus chapter 1, verse 22, Pharaoh commanded all the Egyptians to take all those baby boys born to the Hebrews and throw them into the Nile, save the daughters, but throw those baby boys into the Nile. And God looked down on that and said, it will not be so. You will not get away with it. And here I think he is sending a message to Pharaoh and to all of Egypt. I saw what you did and I will bring judgment. Second reason I say the Nile is important here in in the fact that God's bringing retribution is that up to this point, Pharaoh had refused to obey. We we see that explicitly in verse 16 and and verse 17 where it said, up to this point, you have not obeyed. God is is standing by. He's not just going to stand by and watch Pharaoh claim sovereignty and and carry out his own will at the expense of rejecting God's will. God sees it, and I believe God is bringing retribution here on Pharaoh. Pharaoh didn't want anybody else besides himself to bring glory, to get glory. He didn't want Moses to have glory. He didn't want Israel to have glory. He certainly didn't want the God of a slave people to get glory. He saw himself as God alone, and Pharaoh deserved to have the glory, and God says, not so fast. See, Pharaoh needed to understand three things. Moses was merely an instrument of God. Moses was, was not who his real adversary was. His adversary, Pharaoh's adversary, was not Moses. Pharaoh's adversary was the king of the universe, He wasn't going up against some former princeling. He was going up against God himself. Pharaoh also needed to understand that his refusal to allow the Israelites to leave Egypt would not be tolerated, and it would now be rubbed in his face, as one commentator said, at the divine plan and hand of God. And then Pharaoh needed also to understand that his obstinance, his refusal to bow to the will of this God, the Lord, would not just impact him, but it would also impact those who were in his kingdom. And isn't that the way sin works? When you and I make choices to rebel against God and to, and to do our own thing in light of what we know God is asking us to do, aren't those around us also called to suffer the consequences? And Pharaoh needs to understand this. God is bringing about retribution here because of the murder of those baby boys, Pharaoh's obstinance, but also he is foreshadowing to Pharaoh again what he's going to do. I mentioned last week that the word there when it talked about the staff of Moses that became a serpent and it swallowed up the serpents of the magicians, it was the same word used in Exodus 15. It talked about the Red Sea swallowing the army of Egypt. And I think here in the use of the Nile and turning it to blood, he is showing Pharaoh that your army, even though he's not explicitly stating it, it's going to end badly in this river for you, Pharaoh. If you don't listen to me, it will end badly. It's easy, uh, it's, it's easy to look around. I mentioned this last week. It's easy to look around at, at the culture, at how everyone else is doing their thing, and to think that you can get away with whatever you want to get away with. 
You look around and, and, and police officers are losing their jobs for simply doing their jobs. Now, you, you look around and, and the culture is celebrating sin in new and unprecedented ways. And we look around and we think, man, you can get away with anything in this day and age. God must have fallen asleep or maybe God's not real at all. And the reality is I want you to remember, I want you to see in the course of these plagues that God is going to bring about retribution and judgment on Pharaoh and Egypt, and he will indeed bring about judgment in Pharaoh on all who reject him and all who stand against him and his people. Don't forget that. It is easy to think that he's never going to come. That's why we sing songs in our services to remind you that one day he is coming. Judgment is not one of those pleasant parts of Scripture. It's not one of those things that often goes on coffee mugs. It's not one of those things that we print on T-shirts and that, that draws people in the front door. But judgment is nevertheless a part of the person and the work of God, and it is coming. And we see that here as God mitigates and, and mediates judgment on Egypt and Pharaoh. Second thing I want you to see here is assault. Not only is God bringing retribution, but God is bringing assault. Uh, he, he's, at, he's assaulting at least two areas of, and, and you've got to hang with me through this because this is going to be technical and a lot of notes. And if you don't want to take notes, just listen carefully and get the podcast later. But he's assaulting Pharaoh in at least two areas. Number one, he's assaulting Egypt's economy, their entire way of life. You ever, you ever looked at Google Earth of Egypt? I didn't get one of those pictures, but if you ever looked at, at a Google Earth image of Egypt, basically dry and desert except for where? Follow the Nile. And it's green. The Nile is, is sort of the, the giver of life, and that's the way they saw it there. The Nile was, was, was everything in the life of Egypt. They were totally dependent on the Nile for everything. It was their lifeblood, the basis for their entire civilization. It was their transportation system, how they moved goods from one place to another. It was really their, their source of irrigation. It was how they moved water, and it, it enabled them to grow crops. It was their water supply. It was their food supply. Much of the diet in Egypt was fish. They relied on the Nile to, to bring them food. Uh, every year there were annual floods and the Nile would, would overflow its banks and, and the water would move out into the land surrounding the Nile and it would deposit topsoil all over that region which would allow them to, to then plant crops and grow great crops. The Nile, they saw it as everything. And so when God comes and turns this water into blood, he is saying, what you are relying on is insufficient. It can be taken from you in an instant. Two, not only is God assaulting their very economy and way of life, but he's also assaulting their gods. We'll learn in the final plague that this was what God was doing from the very beginning. We'll walk through these plagues, and at the very end, and the night of the Passover, when, when, when he's going to take the, 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 the firstborn of the households of Egypt 
in verse 12 of chapter 12, we hear God say that he's going to, on all the gods of Egypt, execute judgment. And so here's what he's doing. He's attacking their gods. Historians tell us that in Egypt, there were about 80 different deities. Those 80 different deities or gods were all centered around three different, uh, different um, I guess, natural forces there in, in Egypt. They were centered around the Nile River itself. They were centered around the land, and they were centered around the sky. These 80 gods pretty much fell into one of those three categories. And we're going to see as we walk through these plagues, God is going to systematically and methodically take out every one of them. Now, he's not going to deal with all 80 individually, but he's going to deal, these plagues are going to deal with the Nile, the land, and the sky. And he's going to be in that saying, there is no God like Jehovah. We don't know exactly why Pharaoh was going down to the river. We, we know that his daughter went down to the river to bathe, but we're not told here why Pharaoh is going to the river. Uh, perhaps he is going down to bathe, but it would be very easy to understand that he would be going also down as Pharaoh to bless the God of the Nile. There were three gods associated with the Nile. It was Osiris, Nu, and Hapi. Hapi was the one that, uh, and I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right, but, but uh, he was the one that, uh, that was sort of the fertility god. And when they wanted to um, depict Hapi, he was depicted as um, a bearded man with the body of a pregnant woman. And the idea was that he had given birth to Egypt and that he would nurse Egypt's strength. And so it would be very understandable that here Pharaoh is coming down to the Nile every morning believing that, that, there's, that God is associated with the Nile and he is blessing Hapi or Osiris or Nu or some of these others. It would also be understood, easily to understand, that, that maybe Pharaoh, he sees himself as a god himself and that maybe he is bathing in the Nile or, or going into the Nile to draw more divine strength for himself. Nevertheless, here we see God taking on the gods of the first category, the gods of the river, the gods of Nile. We're going to see God take on and take out all of the rest. God will show himself to be superior to them all. He is assaulting Egypt at where they are depending and at the level of their gods. Third, self-revelation. Self-revelation. God is showing himself. Verse 17, thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. This is a phrase that is repeated throughout the book and really throughout the Bible. The Bible is God's revelation of himself. In chapter 8 of Exodus, verse 10, he says, that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Chapter 8, 22, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. 9, 14, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. 9, 29, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. 10, verse 2, that you may know that I am the Lord. 14, 4, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. You say, Why? Why is God so concerned that they would know who he was? Because he's the only one worth knowing. 
They're giving their attention to all of these others. They're giving their worship to all of these others. And God says, it is idolatry and it is false. And I want to tell you, it is an act of grace that God would reveal himself. Think about how gracious this is. He could leave us in our darkness with no knowledge of him except to look around at creation and know that certainly some God exists somewhere and we could name him whatever we want to name him, but he could leave us there only to be one day surprised by the light of his judgment as we stand in it. But instead, God in his mercy and grace looks down on us in our darkness and doesn't just leave us to wonder, but says, there is a God, let me show you who I am in creation. Beyond that, let me show you who I am in my word. And let me show you who I am most fully in my son. Do you understand that God has gone far above and beyond to show us who he is? And he doesn't do so in a way that says, let me show you who I am so that you'll recognize my face when I judge you. He does so in a way that he says, you are guilty of turning from me, but I'm going to look on you and in this moment give you grace to turn to me so that in my son you can be forgiven of your sin. So that when you stand in front of me on that judgment day, your sin will not be held against you because I will hold it against my son. And his righteousness, his perfect obedience that he lived when he was on earth will be seen in your account. And I will judge you according to that. This is our God Stuart, in uh, one of the commentators I read, uh, Stuart pointed out that this is the first time that this type of phrase had ever been spoken to a Gentile, to a non-Israelite. Up to this point, it had, been, it had been shared with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It had been shared with Moses. It had been shared with the Israelites. But never had it gone outside of Israel. But now it comes first to a Gentile. Do you hear the gospel heart of God in this? Do you hear God looking beyond the Israelites and saying even to those of us Gentiles, you don't have to be You don't have to be a people without a God. You don't have to be a people outside of a chosen nation. You can be brought in to the family of God. This is the heart of our God. The reason we're sending a team to Kentucky this summer to go on mission, the reason we're sending a team to Peru this summer, the reason we're partnering with a church plant in Toronto, Canada, the reason we send money to the cooperative program to, to send missionaries all over the world is because God first take, take, took the gospel to the world. Do you hear me? We go because God went. We send because God sent. We tell because God told. This is a wonderful truth of our God. But I want you to see Pharaoh's reaction. God says to Pharaoh so many times, I'll do this so that you'll know who I am, so that you'll know that I am the Lord. And Pharaoh, though, displays the power of sin to suppress the truth that God reveals about himself. 
The Bible continually says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And we know that, that God is active in this, that God is actively hardening Pharaoh's heart, that God's taking the heart of the king, as Proverbs 21 says, like a stream of water in his hand, and he's turning it wherever he wills. And it is an act of God's grace that he opens any of our hearts to be able to hear and receive the gospel. But I want you to see in Pharaoh the power of sin to suppress the truth that we see about God all around us. We shouldn't be surprised about this. Pharaoh repeatedly looks at evidence and walks away. And Romans 1 tells us that's exactly what all of us do. Romans chapter 1 verses 18 and 19 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. See, sin in our lives causes us to look at the direct revelation of God telling us who he is and calling us to himself and say, nope, not today. And I want to stand in this pulpit and unashamedly implore you, if you are here today and you've never turned from your sin and trusted Christ as Savior and Lord, then today, place your faith in him. Stop fearing what it will be like to have to give up what you think you'll have to give up. Am I going to stand here and tell you that there's not going to be some things in your life that that will change as a result of the gospel? No, that's absolutely the case. But here's what I'm going to say to you. When you turn and trust Christ as Savior, you will find that all those things that you feared losing because they were so precious to you, when you shine the light of Christ and his gospel on them, they become ugly with defect and they become empty and you wonder how they could ever have fulfilled you like you thought they did. You will find that the joy you think you have is a mirage. That it's not real joy. And if you're honest with yourself, you will admit that even now, that the things that you hope in can never deliver the joy and the happiness and the peace and the contentment and the fulfillment that you think they can whether that's possessions or children or job or whatever it is, they will never deliver. You will come to Jesus and you will find not a perfect life, but you will find one that says, no matter what you take from me, you cannot steal my joy because I know that whatever assails me, my God's on his throne and he's coming again one day and one day I will go to be where he is. He has forgiven me of my sin and I am right with him. And that frees you and it fills you. So today, I beg you, I implore you, stop holding on to the unrighteous things, the wicked deeds, the things that you think are so precious, precious to you, and, and give those over and trust the Lord and find him to be all you ever need. Fourth, I think it's four. Is it four? Yeah. Preeminence. I should really number these. But uh, anyway, preeminence. Preeminence is a word that means all important, most important. There's nothing more important. That he is preeminent. 
In verse 19, the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, their ponds, their pools of water, so that they may become blood, and that there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. You say, now where do you get preeminence, the worth, the supreme worth of God from that? Well, this little phrase here at the end, in vessels of wood and vessels of stone, could, could mean just that. It could be talking about jars and buckets of wood and stone where the Egyptians would take and they would collect water and have it sitting around when they needed it later on. But in the Hebrew language, that word vessels is not there. So it doesn't necessarily have to mean jars or buckets or vessels at all. It really could just say in wood and stone. And if you take that and you look at the rest of the Old Testament, the rest of the Old Testament, most of the time when it talks about wood and stone, it's talking about idols. And then when you take that and you take, maybe this could possibly be talking about idols, and you look outside and you look at even Egyptian history, historians tell us that the priests in Egypt would take these idols and every morning they would wash these idols with water. And it could be that God is saying here that I'm going to take even the idols in this land and I will cause them to be covered with blood. And don't, don't super spiritualize this and think that in the, in the washing of blood, this is somehow the, the washing of Jesus' blood, you know, vicariously and, and that sort of thing. It's not that at all. He's saying, I'm bringing judgment here. And he's going to take this precious commodity of the Nile and he's going to turn it to blood and they're going to have to be forced to take blood and bathe these idols every morning. God is showing that he is all together throughout the land of Egypt preeminent. Philip Graham Ryken in his commentary said, God turned the river into blood to show them how utterly worthless and contemptible it was to worship gods of wood and stone. The average American is, Philip Graham Ryken goes on, the average American is not very different from an ancient Egyptian. We still worship the same gods, only the names have changed. What we count on, what we work for, what we play at, what we dream about, these are the gods that we worship. And what matters most to us, most to most of us, is personal prosperity. We depend on our economy every bit as much as the Egyptians depended on theirs. They worshiped the Nile. We worship the Nasdaq. They are just two different names for the same God. Rather than trusting in God alone, we depend on economic growth, rapid transportation, and prepackaged foods. We even have our own creation myth. Believing in Darwinism is really, really just another way to worship Hopi. In much the same way that the Egyptians praised the river as their creator, many Americans believe that we have come from a random stream of genetic material. Can you see the similarities of what was going on here in Egypt that God was bringing judgment on to show that he alone was preeminent, superior to all these things? Can you see the similarities with where we are in America? One day, God will do the same thing to the gods of this age. He will show the utter worthlessness of giving your life to any of them. Fifth, supernatural power. Supernatural power. And I promise you I'm going to hurry through these last two. Supernatural power. 
Verses 20 and 21, Moses and Aaron did what the Lord commanded. And all of a sudden, in the sight of Pharaoh and everyone there, all of his servants, the waters turned to blood. The Bible says that, that, that the Nile becomes blood, that the fish die, that it begins to stink. The Egyptians couldn't drink from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, the Bible says. The reason I put this in here is I don't want you to miss the weight of reality. Sometimes we get so far removed from the stories of Scripture that we think they're just that, stories. We put them on the shelf with, with other bedtime stories for children. Don't miss the reality that history says this happened. This is real. Some say this is not real blood. It's only color. They say, you know, the Bible sometimes uses blood to describe a color instead of real blood. And so they say, well, this probably didn't really turn to real blood. It's just turned red. Some say this was a natural phenomenon, much like the, the, uh, the picture I showed you of the red tide, that there was some sort of algae in bloom that caused it to become red. Some say maybe this was, there have been heavy rains And the red clay had been stirred up and and the river turned red. Now, all of these things are quite the stretch. God can use a natural phenomenon to accomplish his will. When an earthquake happens, we would, if God used an earthquake to, to bring about his will, we would not say that that was just an earthquake, not God. So God can use natural phenomena. But here, I believe it's more than that. I believe the Bible is telling us that that this was turned to real blood. And I want to give you some reasons why I think that. Number one, it happened instantly. When Aaron takes the the, the staff and he strikes the water, it happens instantly. If if this had simply been, it had been raining a lot and and, and there was muddy water, it wouldn't have happened instantly. So how do you explain that? If this was a common thing, like maybe in, algae bloom and this sort of thing happened from time to time, then why would Pharaoh feel the need to to call his magicians? Why wouldn't he just say to Moses, Moses, you're going to have to do a little better than that because this sort of thing happens quite often, so uh, uh, what's your next next deal? Another reason I think this is more than just natural occurrence is I think the language of the Bible just is plain. It just says it's blood. In fact, if you study the language, the two words used in this, the word for blood means blood. And the word for changed or turned means a real transformation. Not to mention the other passages all throughout the Bible, even extra-biblical Egyptian history that treats this as a real event. I mean, Psalm 105.29 and other places talk about this event is really happening. There's Egyptian writings that talk about this event. This is supernatural power, and we need to understand, even in 2015, we need to understand that our God sits on the throne, and he created everything out of nothing to begin with, so there is not a molecule on the planet that he cannot call and bend and use however he wants to accomplish his will. I told the membership class last week, we went to the beach a couple weeks ago, and, and, uh, and I went when we got back home, and I tried to vacuum out all the sand in my car. There will forever be sand in my car. 
right? I mean, till the day I get rid of that thing and then the next owner will have sand in his car, right? That doesn't mean that in in an instant, if God needs one grain of that sand that's under that back folded down seat, tucked in behind the seatbelt strap, if he needs it somewhere in the universe, he can call it like that. It's at his beckoning. We saw this when Jesus said to the storm, shh, be still. We saw this when he turned the water into wine and when he spoke to the the leper and made him clean, when he called Lazarus from the grave, our God can do whatever he wants to do and we should not shy away from this and call ourselves more enlightened. The, the, The last point is this, inferior power. We have supernatural power of God, but then there's an inferior power. The magicians in verse 22 did the same thing by their secret arts. And I told you last week, but I'll tell you again, just because it's so obvious, the most logical thing that they could have done would have been to turn the blood back to water. If, if the Nile was so important and this is going to destroy fish and it's going to take the water away and, it's, and all of this is going to just, just be crippling to Egypt, then the magician should have come out and said, ha, water. Right? But all they can do is make it worse because they don't have any more power than what God allows them to have. See, their power is self-defeating. They only make the curse worse by adding more blood to the already crazy amount of blood that's there. The Bible says there's blood all over Egypt, and they say, let's make more blood. Their power is self-defeating. God bends not just the rules of the universe, but God even takes the power of Satan and bends Satan's power to accomplish God's will. Doesn't this make you feel secure? If if God loves you and you're one of his and he says to you, no weapon formed against you shall prosper. And I don't use that in a prosperity gospel sort of way, but you hear what I'm saying? Then we're secure. We can go to the ends of the earth and we can proclaim the gospel. And if God wants to allow us to be martyred, And that's God's will. And we can go fearlessly. See, even even Satan's best day, the day when he thought he had won, the day when Jesus was finally hanging on that cross, and Satan must have been celebrating with all of the demons. Even in that, he was unaware that his power was what was being used to turn God's wrath away from us. That Satan's power was being used to atone for our sins. And three days later, when Jesus came out of the grave, Satan learned that his best day was his worst day. That Satan's worst was our best. There's inferior power in the world, and it is real power. And we need to be aware of that and should not shy away from that, but it is an inferior power to the power of our God. Well, 
how do we, how do we wrap this up? Because all I've given you so far are a bunch of real things about God and about what God does. So what's the application from this? And very quickly, let me just say this. That when you come to Exodus, it's very tempting to read Exodus that, in a way that puts us at the center. That we're the point. That God owes it to us to rescue us. It's very tempting sometimes also to, to read it in such a way that we put Moses as the hero of the story. And we think, well, Moses must be the, the good guy that we're supposed to emulate. We're supposed to be like Moses. But remember, Moses, a few chapters ahead, is going to strike a rock when God tells him not to. And is going to be forbidden to enter into the promised land. So the point is not God showing us a good guy that we should be like. Nor is the point of Exodus a bad guy, Pharaoh, that we shouldn't be like. Instead, what God is doing in Exodus is showing us God. Not good guy, not bad guy, God. And so here's the application that I would want you to walk away with today. I would tell you, worship him. Peter ends in his commentary, said the point of the plagues for today is not so much in what we do with it, but in having our hearts and minds open to what God has done and thereby understanding him better. Who else but the supreme judge of the universe can make the heavens and the earth do his bidding? Then he asked this question, and I wanted to read this to you and ask you this question to have you think about this. At the end of the day, when the mask come off and we are left to our own conscience, do we really believe in the God that the biblical narrative is presenting to us? I want you to walk away today with that being ringing in your ears. Do I really believe? When I get away from the smiling faces and when I'm sitting at home or in the car by myself, do I really believe the God the Bible tells us exists? Do I believe in a God of judgment and assault and self-revelation and supernatural power? And do I believe this God? And, And the reality is when you wrestle with that question, when you ask yourself that question, and if you come to the answer, yes, yes, I do, then the application naturally flows out of that. You know what the application is out of that? Glory to him. That's the application. I don't have to twist your arm and say, glorify God. I was talking to to Scotty Stone this morning, and we're talking about reading the Bible and how much we should read the Bible and this sort of thing, and we got to talking about fishing. and, And if you love fishing, nobody has to tell you that you need to go fishing two hours a week, right? You just go fishing. You're looking for every spare minute you can to go fishing. And if, if you come to the place where you see God for who he really is, as the Bible has revealed him, and you come to the place where God in, in, in his gift gives you the faith to believe that God, and nobody has to tell you, worship him. So what happened to Isaiah when he gets in that room and sees the train of the robe of the, of the glory of God filling that place and the seraphim flying here and there, worshiping him, doing his bidding. His response is, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. 
And God sends an angel to the altar and takes a coal from that altar and brings it and touches the lips of Isaiah, a picture of the atoning work of Christ. And from that comes this, here I am, send me. It's this natural overflow of seeing who God is. Peter ends, ends this way. This is how it ends. Perhaps the application is, in a word, doxological. We praise God for his fearful might and his great love, both of which he has employed for the sake of his beloved children. When our hearts and mind are imbued with a personal knowledge of our creator, proper morality will follow. Our actions flow from who we are at our very core And who we are is determined by whom we worship. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I know I've gone a little long today, but God, I I can't help but to be just so caught up in your word. Lord, I'm so thankful that, God, that you've revealed yourself to us. Yet we're not left in our darkness to wonder we're not left in our strivings we're not left like those Egyptians to dig around the banks of the Nile searching for water but instead God you have shown us who you are Lord I pray today that you would take your word and God that you would Lord just let it sink into the hearts and the minds of those who are here If there's anyone here today who's not a believer, God, today I pray that they would find grace and turn to you. Lord, for every believer in this room, God, I pray today that they would walk away with an attitude of worship, with a a drive that comes from within, from knowing you to worship you, to lose everything in their life for the sake of knowing you. God, do your work for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll give you a minute just to reflect and respond. I'm going to be seated down here on the front. If you need to talk, I'd love to talk to you. Uh, I'd love to to help you with any issue that's going on. If you're here today and and you've never trusted the Lord and you just need someone to talk to, uh, to, how do I do that? What's the next step? I'd love for you to come down and, and speak to me. If the Lord is leading you to join the church or anything like that, come see me. But more than anything, I want to just encourage you as we sing this last song together to sing to the Lord, to take these old lyrics, Jesus paid it all, and to sing what's true to him. Let's worship our God. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.